0: and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur and who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Please allow me to introduce you to our guest today, Mikhail Ziani, co-author of Humanocracy. Did I pronounce that correctly?
1: Yeah, yeah, you did. Hi, hi Mark,
0: and hi, everyone. Well, thank you for joining us today. I have to tell you, it's an awesome book. I, I, I like Malcolm Gladwell uh, types of books, and
1: I like Adam Grant, and uh, I think it's like at that level a book. Thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad you think that. You know, we, uh, we try to make it, uh, uh, you know, a fun, inter- entertaining read as well as um, uh, an instructive one, a practical one. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, awesome. And uh, again, thank you for uh, being with us here today. So let me first start off by just you telling us a little bit about your background and the kind of consulting work that you do.
1: Sure. So I started my professional career in public policy uh, research. I was a fellow at the Rand Corporation, which is a a public policy think tank in California. And, you know, there, one of the first studies I worked on was around the researching patterns. in terrorism, and it sounds very far afield from what we're going to talk about today, but in a way, it isn't because what we were um, seeing is how terrorist groups were. Uh, this is like in the mid '90s; they were starting to organize uh, around loose networks, and you know, without a lot of formal hierarchy. Um, and you know, they used to previously uh, have like military-like structures, and they were doing something completely different. And this was enabled by technology which allowed you know people to coordinate in kind of dispersed ways and this was like the ultimate threat right because the government and everybody countering terrorists was organized very much like bureaucratic hierarchies and they were much slower uh to respond and so this is before you know like the 9-11 attacks and all of that but th- that's you know kind of what i uh was working on and that just lit my light bulb in my head uh, and and really reinforce the 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 importance of organization as a way to kind of confirm strategic adva- confer strategic advantage right so it, it, in a way the way you're organized the way you're managing the, the firm is you know a determinant of 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 success you know yeah your business model is important but your business model in a way rests on, on top of a um of a manager model right so so anyway so i did that at rand and then i went over to mckinsey spent a decade working at mckinsey always trying to do the kind of uh, interesting, cool projects, um, and and one of the projects was to work with Gary Hamel, uh, who is uh, the co-author of an, uh, of Humanocracy, and a, uh, an idol of mine, you know, uh, since since the '90s. And um, and together, you know, we really eventually ended up, work, you know, creating um, the Management Lab. I left McKinsey, and and we've been working together for a decade. And you know, our mission is to uh, create organizations that are much more capable. Than the most are today, and and we think that the way to do that is to bust the bureaucratic manager model that really is still uh, powering most of these organizations, and create one that is, uh, you know, based on on a new set of principles, which I'm, I'm sure we'll get to uh, later today. So that's you in know, a, in, a, in a way, uh, it, what we do, and you know, as far as the kind of work we do, Gary and I do with companies, it's all about this. You know, how do you dismantle uh, bureaucratic uh, management models, and how do you do it in a way that is very different from the traditional change process, which is very top-down and and kind of engineered? It's it's more one that is about involving everyone in in, in experiment, you know, in identifying solutions and experimenting with them.
0: I have to say, after reading your book, it reminded me of Startup Nation. Did you ever read that book? Yeah. Yeah, and how the Israelis operate is very much like you say, and and why their military has been so successful is because all the decisions were made at the point of contact, not all the way back. And I remember reading in that book that they said that wasn't that Egyptian soldiers weren't good or they weren't well-trained, but uh, since it was a command and control, everything had to go all the way up the line, so many levels. By the time the Egyptians responded to the Israelis, the Israelis had moved to the right or the left. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. And tell us about why you guys wrote this book.
1: Well, it's uh, actually you, you make a good point about you know sense and respond, right? And and you know we we wrote the book before before the COVID crisis hit. Uh, we've been at it actually for for over uh, five years, uh, and you know the crisis of COVID is proof positive that the future is less and less you know the extrapolation of the past, you know and. Um, even before the pandemic this was the case right if you look at you know the threats of uh, uh, job displacing automation geopolitical uh, conflicts but also opportunities like robotics in terms of things genomics and so on you just realize that you know we have an unprecedented array of challenges and opportunities and you know what we need as a species is organizations that have unprecedented capabilities right and so we really set out the book to upgrade our institutional um kind of uh, capacity right to to respond uh, to and anticipate these 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 challenges and and we think that as long as we don't change the way we are organizing and managing we're not going to get there we're not going to have truly capable organizations so that's really what dr- drove us so there's almost like on the one hand a very kind of practical uh, kind of um motivation, which is like creating organizations that are more capable and therefore more successful, more profitable, and, and so on. There's also kind of a moral and ethical kind of, uh, you know, orientation that, uh, that really drove us to write the book, which is, you know, human beings are just not leading, fulfilling work lives. And, 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 and we're squandering a lot of uh, human capacity. And that's just bad, not only for society and the economy, but also for individuals who work in these places who are, you know, um, not able to uh, flourish as much as they could. So that those are, in a way, the two the two motivations. Mark,
0: a couple of things struck me when I was reading this book. One is it's a must read for any Fortune 1000 or anybody who's gotten a big slug of venture capital money. You absolutely have to read this book to avoid these pitfalls that these companies typically run into. The other part of the book that I thought was very essential is that my daughter is listening into this and she handles uh, the marketing, for this and has a global marketing practice, and she's 30 years old. And her generation wants to be fulfilled. This idea of just going to work and earning a paycheck doesn't cut it with them. And if they can't feel that every day they're making some kind of contribution, that they're not intellectually stimulated, or uh, this is no longer fun, or the organization doesn't listen to them. Any of these things, especially now because of the internet, you can work with companies anywhere in the world. They're like, oh, forget it. I'm out of here. I'm not, I'm just not going to deal with that. And so it's very important to read this book as a retention tool, uh, recruiting and retention tool for a company. So I think that's very good. So let's start off with the first questions. How do you define bureaucracy?
1: Yeah, bureaucracy, you know, it's, it sounds like a quaint term, like, you know, like horsepower, power, you know, something of a bygone era, or, or, or sometimes it's applied narrowly to, you know, like the DMV or, or government. But, you know, we, we take the kind of the classic definition, which is um, um, one of an, you know, kind of an organizational model that has the following characteristics. So, you know, you have power that is vested in positions and titles, you know, if there's an authority structure. There's a hierarchy, right? Where power trickles down, where strategy and direction is set at the top, uh, where resources are allocated at the top, where it's you know leaders get appointed by you know bigger leaders, right? Um, where uh, where it's really the task of uh, of managers to um, assign uh, functions and, and roles and assess performance. Uh, where you have a lot of staff functions, you know HR strategy, you know you know. Um, uh, compliance, IT, finance—that that set the rules, right? And 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 enforce compliance. And where you know the competition and success uh, among employees is for promotion, right? That's that's the scarce good. You want to move up the ladder, and that's how you get ahead, right? And, and where compensation is a direct correlate of rank, right? So like people with bigger titles have bigger paychecks, and so that's those are the kind of defining characteristics. Um, of bureaucracy, and we think it's the you know uh, I would uh, be curious among your audience, like how many people, as I rattle off that list, how many people identify with those you know kind of characteristics in their in their organization? And we think most most large, especially large organizations operate that way, and it's it is an operating system that is pretty much universal. It applies to a government agency as much as it applies to GM and you know um, um, you know a Chinese uh, prison, you know, or um, it's just just the way we think organization needs to happen at scale. And the only way we think that organization can happen at scale. Well, I,
0: I also think that all of us and most of our audiences over the age of 50 have experienced what you've just uh, mentioned here. But I think uh, most of the audience is also entrepreneurs. Having those big bureaucracies is what allows entrepreneurs to succeed because they're like battleships and, and bathtubs, right? They, they can't, they're tripping over each other and hence, they miss all these great opportunities. You know, Zoom, the guy was a vice president at Cisco Systems, and he had had this idea and they turned him away because they had WebEx. And now he's worth not that much less than Cisco is right now. And he's personally worth like uh, $15 billion. We had a company in Philadelphia called Share Medical Systems. A guy worked for IBM. He had this idea with healthcare and they couldn't get... Out of their own way, so he just went off and started his own thing and grew it to a billion dollar uh, company. Yeah. So you, I, I it, it, you see this all the time, and, and you mentioned the book that there's only 11 companies left of the uh, original Fortune 500, and we've seen companies come and go, and it, it's, for the most part, it's the bureaucracy that sucks the life out of them. And they stop being creative, and and their people just become robots, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. And um, yeah, the Cisco example is pretty remarkable, right? Because I think you're absolutely right. I think Cisco is worth 150 billion, and Zoom is worth 140 billion or something like that. So, so, and in a way, you could say that's the price of um, kind of strategic inertia, right? The 140 billion dollars for Cisco, right? And I think similarly with Microsoft, you know, they, you know, now they finally. Uh, turned the corner and you know have you know, with Satya and Adela, have gone you know and prioritized the cloud and de-emphasized Windows and so they've you know improved their their uh, their market value and their you know marketplace uh, position in general. But even Bill Gates conceded that you know they missed the mobile opportunity and that's probably a four hundred billion dollar miss. You know and and it's and it's not because people at Microsoft didn't have that those kinds of ideas or didn't even have really good prototypes of alternatives to the iPhone or other products. It's because, you know, people at the at the top of the firm, you know, had a particular paradigm of what success looks like, what the company needs to focus on, and they were able to you squash any kind of uh new new initiative, right? I mean the, the bottleneck, it you know, uh, funnily enough, is at the top of the bottle, right? <laughs> and, yeah. and and as long as people are there are unwilling to depreciate their um intellectual, you know, their, their worldview, you know, that they have acquired over time. Um, you know, maybe when the industry was operating under completely different kind of uh uh, realities, you know, the the organization is always going to be on the back foot, foot, because the organization cannot move faster than these people are are willing to make it make it move, right? And- well,
0: you look at Steve Ballmer. Uh, that was a, a lost ten years of Microsoft's yeah. life. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, they gained nothing during his time, and they lived off of the. It's like being Saudi Arabia, just living off your oil wells. Yeah. Yeah. And that's and that's all he did. And when you talk to I taught 10 years at Wharton, when I would talk to my students who were at Microsoft, they said, it just sucks the life out of you that there's no creativity. And then I would talk to my students who were working at Apple at the time that Jobs was there. And they go, oh, my God, the uh, you know, there's he's constantly encouraging innovation and ideas and wanting people to bring them up through the system as fast as possible. And so you, you see the two different sides of it and, and it was uh, soul-crushing and now the new CEO of Microsoft what a huge difference. I mean now people want to go to work for Microsoft again
1: but 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 the, the the tragedy of this is that you had to wait for a new CEO um, to make the shift, which is like a long overdue shift and as you say it took him 10 years to do that so like the, and a lot of people say, well all we need is a a good CEO. We just need to find the right CEO, and then we'll solve the problem. And the way we look at it, and if you look at the companies that we profile in the book, it's less about finding the right CEO, and it's more about creating an organization that isn't reliant on a CEO who's like super smart, super enlightened to succeed. Because you know, if that if that's the premise, you know that all you know you need to nail who's at the top of the of the pyramid, you're going to be wrong more often than you're going to be. But don't you think?
0: Don't you think the CEO makes uh, the, CEO made the difference in the sense of, and even throughout your book, that those guys encouraged that good behavior that you wrote about, where other CEOs discouraged that they might have played lip service to it, but they didn't get behind it. And you're the CEOs that you talk about. And we're going to talk about those companies uh, as we go along here. So let me ask you the next question. Don't big companies attract risk adverse people who who like predictability and oftentimes uh, run by finance people who love process and a command-control
1: structure? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, to to give bureaucracy its due, uh, it has it It kind of works in the sense that it allows us to produce things efficiently at scale, right? So, uh, I think the new iPhone chip, uh, what is it, the A14 for the you know for the uh, has like a five nanometer architecture. You know the space between transistors, and I think five nanometers is the the length at which your fingernail grows in like five seconds. So you know to achieve that level of of uh, efficiency and control, you know it, it's just remarkable. And in a way, bureaucracy allows that to happen, and it allows reliability to happen. Now we, as we argue in the book. You can still get that without all the baggage of bureaucracy. There, so there are ways to be efficient and innovative, right? But for most people, you know, bureaucracy is kind of a kind of a trade-off. Um, but in an environment where you're trying to predict and try to be reliable and to have a lot of discipline yeah of course then you know the being being uh you know you know being uh quite reliable and quite risk averse is the name of the game that's how you get ahead being innovative taking risks is is a uh, you know career limiting uh and career risky uh kind of a move right right so you end up you know, having organizations that, yeah, maybe they are, you know, humming along and there are no big, you know, no big uh, screw ups. But where, as you say, there isn't much innovation happening.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that you find that with uh, all large uh, organizations is that once people start to make a really good salary and they're afraid to make any kind of mistakes and public companies in particular, the CEO doesn't want to take any chances that money managers won't support whatever they're doing. And then, if only time that they can take those chances is like GE now, which it has, it has um, dropped dramatically. Now this guy is expected to start uh, taking those uh, risks. You gave an example in your book of a health services company from the Netherlands that manages like an entrepreneurial company. Does the type of business dictate this?
1: You mean uh, the business model or the yeah yeah? Well, so. Let me just say a few things about Burtzorg, this uh, you know, home home care company. So they have about 15,000 nurses and other home care workers working in small teams that are, as you say, very entrepreneurial. They're responsible for finding clients, for renting office space, for recruiting team members, managing budgets, and all of that. And there are no layers of management between these 15,000 people and the CEO and the founder. I mean, there are about 100 people at headquarters. Some are like regional coaches, and others are... Uh, back office staff, primarily IT, because IT is kind of the backbone that connects all these teams together. They have an amazing system to do that. But it's pretty crazy, right? And and by the way, they are incredibly efficient. They're the best customer, you know, patient outcomes and so on. So it kind of blows your mind, like how how you could have that kind of a large organization without all the armies of of managers and and administrators uh, that you typically would see at that scale. So you're right that what makes it easy for Birdsorg to organize that way is that they are, you know, they have localized teams, each working in its own, you know, area. And so, and there isn't a lot of interdependence between these teams. So they can operate autonomously, perhaps more easily than in, in other firms. So, so, if you have a model like that, a, a model where you have like a retailer, right? Or, um, or you have naturally decentralized operating units. This might be, you know, easy to pull off in some regard. However, I would say that you might have read um, uh, uh, Mark in the book. I mean, there is an example of Morningstar, which is a tomato processor.
0: Yeah, I asked about uh, that. Yeah,
1: right. So they have a complete. Their business model is one where it's highly inter. It's a process firm. Explain who they are. So they are the largest tomato processor in uh, in North America. I think they, they process thirty percent of tomatoes. So everyone probably in this call has, has had tomatoes that were processed by, uh, by Morningstar in their sauce or uh, puree or, or, or whatever. Um, and the guy who's a fan of this firm, uh, Chris Rufer, uh, he's a, a kind of a libertarian and real a big believer in you know personal freedom and personal agency. So he created a company that operates very much like that, where you know people are working together. Uh, in different parts of the, of the process, but they are uh they're, they're no managers. They are all con- con- contracting with each other. Um, and uh, and so they create these uh, bilateral commitments with each other. And somehow from those kinds of uh uh you know commitments between colleagues, uh they generate this um, uh order, you know, that that emerges essentially from all these inter- you know, contracting that happens. And they are incredibly efficient and incredibly successful. Uh, no managers, and again, so all so it's kind of long answer to your question, Mark. But you know, the the business model will impact the way self management might end up um, uh, uh, being interpreted. But it, the fact that you can do it in completely different industries, completely different geographies, uh, I think shows you that. Uh, it's not, it's not a, a particular answer to a particular kind of problem. It's more a universal kind of approach you can take. And, and, and have
0: any of these companies been able to do it cross-culturally? What I mean is is that they're located in the U.S., but they run the same type of business in France and in India and in China, or, or is this very dependent on the um, culture of the region or country that you're in?
1: No, I think it's 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 frankly universal. So each might have its own flavor that might be you know flavor of the model that might be influenced by all kinds of factors, contingent factors. But let me give you an example. Handelsbanken is another uh, uh, company we talk about in the book. There are about twelve thousand people. It's uh, it's a bank headquartered in Scandinavia. They have about seven hundred fifty branches, but they've expanded to the UK. They have about two hundred branches in the UK. Uh, and you know the cool thing about Handelsbanken is that every branch, a little bit like these Burtzorg um, in nursing teams, every ba- every branch is its own little startup. So they're about, about ten people, and they have a control over to whom they extend credit, uh, pricing, staffing. You know whether they take internal services like from IT and so on, and at what price. So they have, you know they're basically engineered to be little startups. Which is kind of crazy instead of a bank because typically branches in, you know, here if you go to Bank of America, Wells Fargo, whatever, branches are essentially distribution centers, right? They don't really have any say into like the economics of the business. They have KPIs that they manage, like cost sell ratios and whatever, but they're not real PLs. This bank has real PLs. And they opened up in, in the UK. And they grew like crazy, and they found out all these—they found all these people, all these bankers that wanted to be more entrepreneurial, couldn't be entrepreneurial in a traditional banking uh, setting, and and are just having amazing success. Now, you might say that you know, um, you know, the the difference between Sweden and the UK isn't that great. But I'll tell you, uh, this this is true in other cases. Hire, which is a Chinese appliance maker, which we might get into later, yeah, we're they've not acquired sure. they've acquired G Appliances in the UK, in the US, in based in Louisville, Kentucky, which is as far as you can get from Qindao, China, and you know the CEO there, Kevin Nolan, has started to implement this kind of very entrepreneurial way of managing. Based on what Hire does, and they're having an enormous success. They're growing like faster than any other appliance maker in the U.S. And it's because you know the the the, the, it's a very universal idea. Like you know, human beings, you know, desire to be their own, to be self-directed, to make a difference, to stretch themselves, right? And so you you can take that core concept and apply it anywhere, really.
0: Do you need specific skill sets for employees to operate in the self-managed model?
1: Well, I think you you do, but there are easily there' are skills that are easily learned. So what you do in these all these companies, you know self-management is enabled by the following things. First, you know you got to give people the, the, the decision rights right so you know you, you, you are you are able to make the following decisions. Second, you need to give them the information. Right, so that they know whether their decisions are uh, working, you know, are having a good impact or bad impact, and they can adjust. Uh, third, they need to have the, in a way, the business IQ or the business expertise to uh, to know what are the good decisions. Right. So, um, uh, and third, and the last one, I would say, and then I'll give an illustration, is that they need to have skin in the game. So they have to live with the consequences of the decisions they make. And let me, let me give you an example from, from Nucor. They're like a large steel maker in the US, about 26,000 people. So they, and they have, they're the most um, profitable uh, steel maker in the country. Um, you know, it's a blue collar workforce um, and they're incredibly innovative. And, and, and so their teams, you know, managing, for instance, the furnace, you know, that takes the scrap steel, uh, scrap metal and turns it into steel. They are, um, they are able to negotiate with, you know, providers of electricity, you know, because that's the electricity is really, you know, um, what they need to melt, you know, to apply the electric, electric shock treatment to the scrap metal. So, you know, people working the furnace are in contact with the electricity providers to set rates, to set time, you know, how much power needed at what time and so on. They decide, you know, whether they need to replace equipment or not, whether to modernize it or not, do they deal with the suppliers, they do all that themselves, you know, so they're incredibly empowered. Second, they have the information. They know on a date on an hourly basis the profitability of their particular aspect of of the process, right? Uh, third, they know the economics of the business. Everybody at NuCore and every plant knows what return on assets is, what working capital means, um, what the cost of attrition is. You know what the lo- what the cost of a loss you know of downtime is. They have this really cool. Um, Training—it's one of the things they do called dollars and tons. It's a day-long simulation where you're put in charge of a, of a steel mill, and you compete with other people, and there are different teams working together. And they learn all these concepts in you know through a simulation, and then they they, they apply them. And lastly, around incentives, so they get compensated on how much steel gets pushed out every day. And so beyond a particular rated uh, capacity, let's say it's like 80. Uh, you know, whatever they produce on top of that, they make a big chunk of that additional uh, productivity gain. And so th- they are constantly uh, searching for new ways of innovating and try new things because the more they produce, the more they sweat the assets, the more money they make, right? So if, if you do all those four things, you know, you don't need to control people. They'll do what's right, not only by them, but by the, by, by the company, right? Because the interests are completely aligned. There's no. It's not like you have the you know, the managers and the employees. Everybody in a way is is both like both a manager and an employee.
0: So yeah, talk about uh, a little bit about this because they're. I don't think they're unionized. Correct? They're not. And they get paid less than unionized uh, employees on an hourly base, but they actually make more, and their jobs are secure. So explain how that's worked to their benefit.
1: So so at Newcore. Um, yeah, so the compensation system uh, I kind of alluded to earlier works is like this. Their base, you know, their base salary is lower than than, than the t- typical one in the industry, but uh, they do make they have a, a much higher upside. Uh, as I said, you know, it, 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 they have a weekly productivity bonus, so which depends on how many tons of steel they push out um, safely. Like, it, it, you get docked if you have like safety issues that uh, you know take place in the plant when you in, in, in that particular week. But which means that, you know, uh, yeah, the more they produce, the more they churn out, the more money they make. And in a typical year, they make a, a 25, 30% more than, than their peers. And the interesting thing is this, you know, US Steel, which has a unionized workforce, they also have a profit sharing plan. But the profit sharing at, at US Steel is based on the price of steel, which is you know, completely exogenous. Like, you know, these people can't, can't do anything about the price of steel. Right. new core it's based on how much money they how much they produce and they have entirely i mean yes of course sometimes they can produce less because you know the the cycle is you know against them but in general it's something that they can actually influence themselves so it's a completely different way to think about rewards and upside right in one case it's you have nothing to do with it so who cares? Nothing you can do every day affects your profit sharing plan. In the other case, it's entirely driven by what you can do. So that's that's one thing about compensation. Around job security, at Nucor, there's a saying, do your job well, have it tomorrow, which means you know they fire people that are incompetent, and it's typically the team that fires incompetent people, not ma- a manager, because like again, it's a team bonus. Right? So if you're the furnace crew, you know, and you have someone who's like holding you back, you want to get rid of that person, right? You don't need to complain to HR. You just, you know, so so, so they fire people that are not good fits, but in general, like there are no layoffs. They've never laid anybody off. In fact, they're the only ones I think in the industry that have done that. They've grown employment while everybody else has has shrunk has, has employment. And, and this creates an enormous amount of security and trust Right. Um, and so you're going to, you know, with that kind of social contract in place, you're going to give your best. And, and in fact, the irony, Mark, and I'll just stop here uh, so you can ask other questions, but they are the world leader in, in steel, in the steel industry, in automation. And you know why? Because people know that, hey, you know, first of all, your compensation depends on getting the most out of your capital. So, of course, you want to automate things that you are doing manually that you so you can do something more productive right like why would you want to spend time doing you know bs work if you're getting compensated on productivity the second thing is that you know you're not going to lose your job so like while other steel makers other manufacturing companies workers may stay completely mum about things that you know they could send you know outsource to a machine because they feel like if i say that i'll lose my job and Newcore, it's the opposite right you want to offload all the crap work to a machine so you can do more things with your time, more productive things. There's a completely different kind of uh, attitude towards these things.
0: I was very impressed with uh, what they were able to do there, but the employees are totally aligned as stakeholders. And I guess uh, as Newcore Public, I couldn't remember. Yeah, so everything that they do is totally aligned with the investors themselves, for themselves, and they feel that they have some control over their future because they're in charge of their future at, at the lowest level of the organization. So if it doesn't work, they have nobody to blame but themselves. And if it succeeds, they they share in the riches that come from the success.
1: Yeah, and as you say, Mark, you know the, the investors get it. I, I just find it um, sometimes quite a dubious claim to say that somehow the investors are um, you know making it difficult for companies to innovate or to treat their employees better and so on because they're so thirsty for that quarterly dividend. I actually think it's the other way around. Like if you can tell a good story to an investor, say, look, uh, you know, the, the way we generate money is by leveraging this collective genius across the enterprise, which is why we need to empower these people, which is why we can't fire them if there's a downturn because you know what? They'll invent new things during when the, when they're idle and by the time the cycle goes back up, you know, we'll we'll be much even more successful. You, if you tell that story, investors will understand. If you have no story to tell and you say, you know, our, our people are essentially commodities and our business success isn't dependent on exactly who we have, you know, because they're quite replaceable. Yeah, then of course the, the investor might say, well, well then let's get, get rid of them, right? Because you can replace them. So it's, you know, in a way, I think it's completely backwards. Like, you know, the investors get it if you have, if you put people at the hu- human being at the center of your business model, then investors will be much more understanding. You know, I, I think
0: entrepreneurs totally get that concept because every entrepreneurial venture I ran, when I read the story, I said, that's exactly how we ran all the companies I had, which was to empower the people. Everybody benefits financially from it. And every time you read the story in Nick Magazine and an entrepreneur talks about it, they talk about exactly this process that they go through because- They've left the large company because they weren't getting that kind of um, uh, ability to control their futures and participate in the profit uh, of, the, of the success and, and of their own ideas. And, and, and before I ask you some other questions, talk about Hire as well, because I bought their product 15 years ago, actually 18 years ago, and they were much less than Ken Moore and some of the others. And it turned out to be a great product that they were developing. And they have a process for even developing products uh, that encourage it. And it goes along with the lines of how do you elicit the everyday genius? So talk about that and explain who these guys are.
1: Yeah, so they're the largest appliance maker in the world. uh, They have about 80,000 people worldwide, 60,000 in China. But as I said, they have about 15,000 people in the U.S. uh, with GE appliances that they bought in 2016. Um, And they've been on a tear for the last couple of decades. They've grown faster, both um, profits and revenues than any other competitor, both in China and, and elsewhere. Um, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that the CEO who has been there for, for a long time is really committed to turning the entire company into like a network um, and, and where you have entrepreneurs internally and externally who are plugging into this network. Uh, and so, you know, cause uh, the, it doesn't do you much good if you just decentralize and you have all this chaos. So the, the trick is to decentralize and create entrepreneurial energy, but then leverage the scale of a large firm, right? And I think Hire is being really successful at that. So they've uh, let me give you uh, like the picture from China, and so the the main part of their business. So they've um, disaggregated the company into four thousand micro enterprises, as they call them. And these are little units of about 10 people. Uh, and some of them are like you know, the product management unit. So a new appliance, you know, like a three door refrigerator or, or, or something like that. And they're the ones responsible for, you know bringing that to the consumer. But then this micro enterprise c- contracts with uh, other micro enterprises for services. So you have, manufacturing, you have design, you have uh, uh, distribution, right? You have marketing. And so they, a little bit like Morningstar, I mentioned earlier, but uh, like a larger scale between, you know, different units, they have internal contracting. And then all these, um, uh, you know, uh, 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 micro enterprises, you know, basically um, uh, are compensated on on the success of the product that they bring to market. So even if you're in manufacturing and you do your job and you produce with the refrigerator that they ask you to produce, if that refrigerator does badly in the market, you get docked, your composition get docked. So like everybody is working for the customer, right? And which is what, you know, the, uh, Jean Groumin, the CEO said, you know, no, we don't need managers because everybody reports to the customer. Even people deep in the, you know, deep in the bowels of like finance and r uh, and um RD, you know, they get compensated on how well the products that they bring to, to, to life do. And and the other cool thing that Mark you alluded to about hire is that they develop their products very much in the open. So they always start by um you know crowdsourcing like needs and desires of the customer. So, you know, for instance. Let's say you, uh, you want to understand you know what is what what features should our new uh, air conditioner have? They just have these. They use you know uh, social me- tap into social media sites in China, which are really big. You know they get millions of people engaged on what are the biggest pain points? You know what what else would you need and so on. And then once they develop all you know all of that and synthesize it, they put together a prototype. The prototype goes up on a crowdfunding platform, and if they have enough people that buy the prototype, then that goes into production. So, like, basically, no product is put out to the market unless it's been thoroughly kind of um, uh, uh, you know crowdsourced, you know, both in terms of like the pain points and the user needs, but then also the actual working prototype. So it's a pretty remarkable way, right, of 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 thinking about how products are developed. Very, very much, you know, customer customer driven and 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 led. But here, I think, the founder
0: uh, of this company is entrepreneurial, and he basically looked and said to himself, I wouldn't want to work for a bureaucracy, I wouldn't want to uh, just come to work like a robot, and if I could just encourage everybody to be thinking about their line of business, and they're all getting a chance to make a difference, come up with their own creative ideas, and take pride in it, then I'm going to, he's essentially a venture capitalist with 4,000 investments,
1: Exactly. And and the cool thing is that they also have investments from outside. So if you want to start up something, um, a new, you know, for instance, there's this uh, micro enterprise that focused on creating um, um, IoT, so Internet of Things enabled washing machines in in college dorms, right? So, and the idea was you have an app that allows you to schedule uh, your wash, but then this app has uh, other services you can buy. You You can buy like snacks or like shelving, or whatever so they created this little ecosystem of products within this app so it was a hire washing machine but but you know they that they installed so hire made money out of that but then you know it was really the app that drove this and so hire so the guy that came up with this idea was an internal hire employee but he got external venture capital he put his own money um, and he got his own equity stake and then he obviously had hire as a, as a, as a uh, I don't even know if hire was a majority shareholder or not. But basically, so that's a higher micro enterprise, and I think that, and there are a few other like that, and ended up some of them get reacquired by higher. So there's like kind of some sort of earnout mechanism, uh, so higher can kind of buy buy back the equity that it has given others. Uh, but in some cases, they go public. They do a little IPO, and uh, so I think this might have gone might have gone public earlier this year, uh, and so that the employee becomes a millionaire. So it's basically go back to the example, Mark of of Eric Yuan at Zoom. So if if Cisco had been had been operating like Hire, Eric Wan would have been told, all right, you want to start something like an alternative to WebEx, fine. Here's, you know, you start it, we maybe participate with some equity, and then and then let's see what happens. And you would have gone off instead of leaving Cisco, you would have created within Cisco, right? At hire, that happens all the time, um, which is a pretty remarkable thing, especially if you think at the fact about the fact that it's an appliance maker. It's not like Silicon Valley Darling or anything like that.
0: Yeah, but I said, right, right. It's not something like tech, although technology is a huge part of what they do. It's just in that particular space. The other thing I thought that they did, and I think we've all experienced if you've worked for a large company, is let's say you want printing done. They say, oh, we have a printing shop, and then the printing shop charges you money. Hire basically says, talk to our printing shop. If they can't give you the best price, then don't pay them. Go to somebody else. You know, whatever you need, go within the hire system. If somebody can't do better than the outside, then and then that requires Hire to get smarter about whatever they're doing, so they can match or better the price. Yeah, yeah everything yeah. he does is it's very, very, very smart.
1: Yeah, it's very, I mean the 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 irony, of course, is that you you know uh, Hire in a way is like the best example on quasi unfettered like internal internal capitalism <laughs> within a firm, and, right. it, and it happened in, China, in communist China, while in the you know, in the U.S most most of those decisions are very much made like a, the soviet union right capital allocation and all of that it's all like it's like the soviet uh, politburo deciding like where to spend money at, and there are all these internal monopolies there's only one hr department one it department and if you don't like what they do well screw you you have no you, you can't go anywhere else you know you just have to use them right so it's very yeah. it's very interesting that in that way
0: <laughs> how as you write uh stop how, uh, stop organizations from beating the bold out of you. Because you talk about being bold. Mm-hmm. And how do you stop these organizations from beating it out of the people that they're hiring? Especially if you want to get smart people like you work for McKinsey. If you're trying to uh, hire McKinsey type thinkers, if they're not going to want to come to an organization that they can't be bold. And when you get the smart kids coming out of college, no matter what school that they're coming from, they also want to be challenged. I had one of my students just yesterday call, uh, call me. He had went to St. Joe's, and he said this uh, organization he's in, they're not allowing him to grow, so I want to leave.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it goes back to some of the things that we were talking about earlier, Mark. So you got to allow everyone to, to be able to experiment, right? Um, you can't just leave it to the big wigs in R&D or product development or whatever. Like, everybody should – should should be able to try something out, something new, um, you know. Like I, uh, you know, Amazon is is a really good example, right? They're a large company, but anybody can really start an experiment, and no one can really stop an experiment. In the book, we have this example of Greg Linden, who you know is the guy behind the shopping cart yeah. um, idea, right? And you know, he basically got this idea. He was like well, going to ch- the checkout of the supermarket, and he saw that there are all these like you know, things you can buy as you wait in line, right? The chewing gum and the magazines and whatever he said. And he thought, well, this was like in 2000, I think. So very early on in in Amazon's history when it was just primarily selling books. And, um, And he said, well, why don't we implement something like that in our... In our organs, in, in 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 when people check out. So so as you as you go and check out before you, you pay, you're saying, would you be interested in this product or that product or whatever? And his boss said, No, that's like we don't want to do that because if we do, you know, maybe the customer will uh abandon the checkout process and it's a distraction, it adds friction. And so he was very much against it. And and Greg said, Well, screw, screw what he says. I want to try this anyway. So, and he tried it in a little part, you know, not with every customer, but and he what he found is that, you know, it was actually customers loved it. Right. And, and, and then he said, you know, um, that's really the kind of culture you want. And it even ended up being uh, awarded like the just do it, you know, award at Amazon and Jeff Bezos gave him a, a used Nike sneaker, you know, to, to exemplify that. Um, and um You know, so you have to create an environment where everyone has the authority to try something. You know, Eric Jan should be able to try the alternative to Zoom as long as it's not very expensive or it's not a huge distraction and it's within certain parameters, which you can totally do. You can run an experiment without investing a total capital. You have to also give the people the tools and expertise, right, to run a proper experiment to do this right. Just saying, go ahead and try something without giving them the the, the means to do that in intelligent way is a recipe for disaster. And as I said, the third thing you want to give people the incentives, right? So so they are doing the right thing and they have the motivation. You know, I'm not sure if this is true in the case of Greg Linden and Amazon. I don't think he started his own little, you know, checkout business within within Amazon. But at higher, that's very much what happens, right? So you start your firm, you start your micro enterprise, and if it goes well, you 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 generate you know, um, uh, a huge amount of upside. So those are yeah. the, the three things.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely think that's a super smart way of going. Can you please talk about why you use the Atlas Project and explain what that is as an example of a successful organization not running top down?
1: Yeah, so the Atlas Project um, is um, a very interesting example. And we showed it to, to uh, we we had it uh, in the book to, to show like the fact that you can manage without managers, even at an, an amazing degree of, of complexity, right? Because that—that's always the pushback. Like, oh, you can manage without managers if you're like five people startup or whatever. But you know, if it's like a large organization, you absolutely you need this managerial kind of uh, overhead to make sure things don't fall apart. And so, Atlas is basically a, a, a research initiative that one of the four that makes up the Large Hadron Collider, and uh, which is based in in Geneva, and the. Atlas was launched uh, in in the 90s. It basically has more than 3,000 scientists, all encompassing 880 different research institutions, and you know they were launched to uncover the deepest secrets of the universe, right? So they wanted to find the God particle, the Higgs boson, which you know they got a good trace of um, a few years ago, and so they and. To, to, to detect those kinds of particle, they built one of the most sophisticated machines ever constructed. So it's a huge particle detector that is about 45 meters high and 25 meters long, and it's got 10 million parts. And it has to be like they had to design all of this and then put it uh uh you know um, um deep beneath the soil. Like it was it's all underground. And um, it's something that has an enormous amount of interdependency because, you know, one piece affects the other piece and and it needs all to be right. And there's all this uncertainty as they develop this, these, this technology because it never been done before. So problems would always come up. Oh, you know, the people that designed, uh, you know, one, one magnet, you know, that figured out that it needed to be bigger than what they originally thought. Well, that means that there's less space for these other parts. And so they had to figure out like, how do we coordinate? And so the way they did that is not through some sort of Management chain, but rather the you know they call it ad hocracy. You know, basically these task forces that whenever there was an issue of that kind would just basically emerge and they would try to figure out you know horizontally coordinating peer to peer how to solve that problem. And they did that every time there was a the coordination challenge. And you know, not only did they deliver um, you know this product in this amazing uh, feat of engineering on time, but they did it also within budget and. And as as I said, it's just a very good example of how like even when it comes to extremely complex problems, you can manage you can find ways to coordinate and get the control you need without without that sort of like traditional approach, which is very much management uh, driven.
0: So when you were at, uh, a major car company didn't see Tesla coming, Could it be the board felt they had such a big investment in traditional car manufacturing? They wanted to wait for someone to grow the new market first. Because I always think that they never want to be on the leading edge. Nobody in the organization wants to necessarily take those risks. And, and the finance people look and say, oh, my gosh, we have all these plants. Retooling these plants will cost us X amount of dollars. I mean, you know, American car companies learned a very hard lesson from the Japanese when they weren't creating the best quality car. And the Japanese were not only creating better quality cars, but cooler cars and then it made us have to ratchet up our game even though we were kind of the creators of the the car
1: industry. Yeah, um so I think th- in September GM announced that they were um going to invest in their own EV technology, fully invest in their own proprietary one as opposed to just sourcing it from others. And I think Tesla when when was the first Tesla out like in 2010, 2011, something, something like that? Something like that. Yeah. So so GM it took GM 10 years. to to make this investment. I suppose better late than never, but the fact that it took him 10 years to get to this point is pretty remarkable. And it's not just GM, the German car manufacturers the same way, even Toyota and so on. So like, I don't know, like how long does it, does it have to take that long? (laughs) Uh, I mean, I can can understand the hesitancy at the beginning, but how much evidence do you need? I mean, let me give you another example, maybe even, even more damning, I think. You know, um, right at the same time, I think GM announced that it wanted to um, invest in, in 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 battery technology and so on. Uh, uh, Walmart said we're going to introduce Walmart Plus, which is our um, alternative to uh, Amazon Prime. Right, so you pay ninety bucks a year or something like that, and you get yeah. yeah. And I just looked. I just for kicks, I looked. I said, when did Amazon do that? Did you, do you do do you want to venture a guess when Amazon introduced Amazon Prime.
0: Well, Amazon Prime, I think it's been around with like maybe eight or 10 years. And uh, Walmart's just been in the past three years, right?
1: So Walmart introduced a uh, Walmart plus this September. Amazon Prime was introduced by Amazon in 2005, 15 years ago. All right. And so, and they've invested, they bought jet.com. They had their own, you know, Walmart lab and in Silicon Valley, you know, figuring out the future of the internet and all of that. Yet it took him 15 years to, to copy Amazon on Amazon Prime. I mean, how, how, in what planet is that like, is that normal? Like what, you know, why did it take him 15 years, not 15 months, 15 years to do this? It's just, in, I don't know. I just, so the notion that somehow, I mean, I never, I don't buy fully the whole like, um, disruptive innovation thing where somehow you can't, you, you don't want to cannibalize your entire your existing business and therefore you're slow to respond. I mean, it might make sense to some extent, but in the case of Amazon uh, and, and, and Walmart, you know, think about like why, what, what costs would Walmart have, have had to incur? To make this happen earlier, you know, what cost would they have had to incur to, 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 uh, you know, be to respond to Amazon more properly on e- e-commerce? They're just now getting their stuff together. It's just, you know, the, the fact that I, I just, anyway. So it's just another example, and I'm just not convinced that somehow this is inevitable.
0: I think I think oh, it's too many layers. I think by the you have an idea, and you see that ideas aren't necessarily encouraged. Yeah. Uh, or if people have had ideas, they've been shot down early. And to get, you, like you said, there's like 15 layers of management in some of these companies. They don't run like flat organizations. Uh, and one of the things you wrote about is what, and I want to know this, what's wrong with the concept of thinkers are at the top and doers at the bottom because the thinkers get the big bucks? What, what, what's the problem with that? Well, <laughs> it.
1: Because, you know, if you have like 10 people at the top, Who are responsible for seeing and sensing and responding to all the stimuli, all the challenges we talked about earlier? You know, it just like sees anybody's cognitive capacity. You're not going to have that many smart people up there, right? That can do make all those decisions. And a lot of the information is at the periphery; it's distributed. So, like, it's it's just like an elitist um, and and frankly wrong uh, perspective that somehow those people at the top uh you know no more than everybody else it just doesn't work that way especially in a large company especially in this kind of environment that changes so so quickly a lot of knowledge is distributed and 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 you know the people at the top are the last people that find out i mean so let me give you a quick statistic so this is from an hbr study that the former dean uh nita noria ran with michael porter came out a couple years ago and they looked at the the diary of ceos in large firms in the us i think mostly us or maybe there are some international ones but and they said well, how much time are CEOs spending with, with 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 customers you know you want to venture a guess in a year oh, like one percent Yeah, it's like three percent three percent is st- with the customer and they spend more time with McKinsey and, and so like with consultants than they do like four times as much and so in what world where that happens are the CEOs going to know more than possible yeah, right so so it's just it to me it's it, it's insane but in a way bureaucracy creates that kind of a caste system right? where the, the thinkers at the top, the doers that are at the bottom, and you know, the people the people that see the future at the top and everybody, and everybody else is heads down. That's just like you know, unrealistic and it's a huge waste of, of, of intellectual capacity, right?
0: I, I once actually worked for a guy where I was the number two and, and we were taking this space and creating uh, kind of like an incubator. And so one of the maintenance guys with eighth grade education had this idea and the CEO said to me, he's a, he's a maintenance guy. What the hell would he know? Right. Why would you even listen to him? So this guy went on vacation, and I empowered the uh, guy to do this. We ended up making $150,000 off of his idea, and it only cost us $5,000 to implement it. And he couldn't believe it. But this guy knew way more about restructuring space than I would ever know. And so I, I just said, What's the harm in us trying to go and do this? One of the things I thought was interesting, you wrote in your book, why why do, as you write in the book, bullying managers who learn to listen open-heartedly, again, revert back to being bullies? And how do leaders discourage that?
1: Yeah. So I think that was in reference to um, a, a movement to uh, called Sensitivity Training in the 60s, where people were, like in the 60s, you know, the height of like... Uh, new ageism and so on there, are, but there are a lot of people that really understood that authoritarian management was a bad thing to do. And so they would, uh, you know, companies would send their, their managers to, to training for a week or two kind of unthinkable today. And, and they, during the sensitivity training, they would learn, um, you know, how their behavior was just like so toxic and they would almost have like this, um, you know, you um, yeah, awakening, you know, uh moral, spiritual awakening. So then they would go back to to work and say, you know, this time it will be different. I'm gonna be uh I'm gonna be a um a new leader, you know, I'm gonna be a better leader, I'm gonna empower my team, blah, blah, blah and so they would start that way but like everybody around them you know operated in like the similar similar way as, as 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 you know as they did before this training so by the end you know after 6 to 12 months they're like oh you know screw this like you know i'm going to i have to play this the game everybody else plays so so that was in reference to that which means that you 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 do need to pair like individual shifts in mindset with institutional change in in you know kind of how the organization is managed like one can't work without the other um, but, you know, the importance of mindset is very, very, very large. You do need to start with yourself as a manager, you need to challenge yourself, how am I, because bureaucracy, if you're part of my French, you know, makes assholes of us all right and so, like, how do I de-assolify myself, how do I keep myself honest, because there are all these behaviors. I'm padding a budget, I'm undermining a colleague, I'm doing things that uh, out of lazy, you know, out of because I don't have confidence in my team that I could actually give out to them, but I just want to do it myself, or I'm taking credit for someone else's decision, or w- w- whatever it is, like, keep yourself honest, you know, do a check, we have a little checklist, little exercise uh, in the book, and, um, and then maybe ask your team to keep you honest. So it starts there, but as I said, it doesn't end there, right? You also then need to change mindsets, and and then the, the broader kind of uh, management context in which you operate.
0: Your opinion is that technology hasn't reduced bureaucracy or encouraged creativity. Why?
1: Well, it could. And in fact, a lot of the companies that we feature in the book use technology to enable the lateral coordination that needs to happen if you don't have managers doing the coordination. So like uh, Burtzorg, I mentioned earlier, they have this amazing system that allows the nursing teams to co- coordinate with each other you know, often technology can be used to control people, right, and, you know, there, there are these people are saying that it's ushering a new way, you know, new wave of, of Taylorism, we call digital Taylorism, where you can control everybody's keystroke or what they do. Uh, and and so technology can be a force for empowerment or it could be a force for micromanagement. And so, by you know, we shouldn't be um, thinking that by itself, it's going to dislodge bureaucracy. It could actually, you know, make it even even more efficient, you know? And, and it's so it's it's it gives us the opportunity but we need to to really change our, uh, our our paradigm for it to be fully effective in in liberating people at work here's my last
0: question for you and I thank you so much for being on with us today for entrepreneurs trying not to fall into the bureaucracy trap what do you recommend when building their business so from the very beginning
1: yeah well I, let me tell you the story it's not in the book but it's I'm doing active research with these guys they're called be- Putzville, they're a large, um, well, now large. They started really small ten years ago. Uh, 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 grocery uh, chain in in Russia around Moscow. Uh, the guy who founded and they're doing an IPO next year. They're like one of the unicorns of Russia. Their their sales are over a billion and three U.S. dollars, so they've they've become quite a significant company. Um, the guy who founded it read Gary Hamel's my colleague's uh, uh, article about Morningstar, the company we talked about earlier, and said. I wanna create a company that is like that. I wanna create a company that doesn't have managers or has very few managers and where everybody can be self-managing. So he created this company and where very much uh, like we described at Nuco and so on, different stores are essentially local uh, little business units and where people in the store uh, participated in the performance of the store. So a quarter of the compensation of store people is dependent on store sales. So, and they, you know, like new court, lower base salary, but much, much of an upside where you can start your own business very much like higher. Uh, and where interestingly enough, um, you know, you have incredibly low um, or incredibly high, rather, ratios of, you know, spinal control. So they have like 12,000, 10,000 people working there. They have like, again, two layers of management. And the interesting thing for support services, so for instance, um, legal or HR, IT, whatever. What they do is that they divide, so so take take legal, so as they grow, so legal, you know, you start hiring hiring lawyers, what they do is that they divide the legal department into little legal departments, and then you can choose the legal department you want to work with. And so instead of having, so they said, instead of adding layers of management under legal, we just keep legal departments really small, entrepreneurial, we just have more of them. <laughs> huh. and, and there's like almost like internal competition, and if and if you know if you if you're um, and you get paid on on activity. So if you're a legal department that is you know uncompetitive, you don't offer good advice, or you're 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 too pricey, you lose you lose business, and then you go out of business. No one needs to fire you, no one do- because no one will come to you. And so they've they've wrapped, they've created this logic, as they grew right of like keeping keeping things really disaggregated. Um, you know, having again there a lot of customer feedback and input in determining, you know, in basically regulating performance. Uh, you know, so everybody like hire reports to the customer. You know, disag- you know, keep disaggregating big units into small units, uh, and then giving people the upside so that they'll make the right decision, not only for themselves but the company. So, uh, I'll be writing about them. Hopefully, there'll be an article about them. In- and the name of the company again. V-K-U-S-V-I-L-L means tasty town in Russian. <laughs> they make like organic and locally sourced food. Um, and I'll be writing about them. So I'll and I'll share with you, Mark, so you can share with your audience the article because there's almost nothing written about them. They reached out to us and they said, hey, we're doing what you guys said we ought to do. Uh, and the cool thing is that when they go out to, as I said, they're, they're gonna go public next year. The cool thing is that they go out to the investors and say, you know, we have a cool, what's really driving our success is not the business model, but they have, a, um, they call it beyond Taylor, you know, Taylorism, Frederick Taylor, the scientific management, uh, you know, inventor is that our model, our management model is the most important asset, you know, and, and that they use that in their investor pers- perspectives, which is pretty, pretty remarkable.
0: I want to thank you so much for uh, taking the time to share with us uh, information about your book. I hope everybody buys this book to me, it's like a must-read book, uh, especially for entrepreneurs who are looking to build a great company and for people who feel stymied in their existing company or think, I should just break out and do my own thing here rather than do this. So I wish you the best of luck with this book. And when you do your next book, please let us know. All right.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Have a great and safe weekend. Everybody have a wonderful, safe weekend. Take care.